0: Welcome to the Social World Podcast. Uh, My name is Dave Niven. Um, This is going to be a weekly podcast. Um, I'll be talking about anything and everything to do with the social world, Uh, anything that comes my way. There'll be news, there'll be items, there'll be interviews, anything that's contemporary and to be quite frank with you, anything that I think would interest you. My backgrounds in social work, I was a former chair of the British Association of Social Workers and um, mostly I worked with children and families and mostly I worked involved with child protection and latterly with disabled children and their families. So I hope you enjoy it. This is episode eight. Uh, I can't believe they've gone so quickly. And um, I welcome regular listeners, and uh, for new listeners, you're very welcome as well. I'm very pleased that we're getting a much wider listenership, even after only seven podcasts. And uh, for those of you that uh, would like to uh, pass on and get to help us get a wider readership, please indeed um, ask people to search iTunes and help make it wider still. We're doing very well, but we need to get better. Uh, reviews. Photographs, thanks very much. Who talked about us being refreshing and informative. Somerset Hills, long called for. Doris, thank you. SPR Mackenzie, thank you. Please keep your comments coming in, all of you. Please, um, I really would love to actually see your feedback. Now today, I just want to follow up one thing. We, we did an original podcast back in the middle of uh, October where we talked and interviewed to Jenny Randall. And would you believe it, at the Social work, uh, National Social Work Awards last Friday, Jenny received a Lifetime Achievement Award. And rightly so too, because of all the work that she's done. And she's, as I explained before, one of our main trainers with looked-after children. So fantastic Jenny, well done, keep it going, and keep working for us. But today, what we're going to have a look at is we're going to have a look at a couple of, uh, a listen to a couple of BBC radio interviews on different subjects that I actually have done within the last week, and then I thought we'd have a, a little bit of an explanation, a little bit of an explanation of the beginnings of me coming into social work. So, I hope you enjoy it, I hope you... Uh, relate to it, and come back to me with your feedback. This clip is uh, an interview I did about Ian Watkins, who was the lead singer of Lost Prophets, the rock band, and he was convicted of some fairly horrific uh, child sexual abuse um, situations, and uh, it brought up the whole issue about celebrity abusers.
1: Time is 12 minutes past seven now. Rock singer Ian Watkins was labelled a determined and committed paedophile by a Cardiff Crown Court judge yesterday after he pleaded guilty to a string of serious sexual offences against children. His band, The Lost Prophets, who formed in 1997 and sold over three and a half million records worldwide, had a cult following amongst the alternative music scene. Two women who can't be named for legal reasons also admit offenses against young children. While speaking outside court, Chief Inspector Peter Doyle from South Wales Police, who led the investigation, revealed the extent of that investigation.
0: This investigation has uncovered the most shocking and harrowing child abuse evidence I have ever seen. There is no doubt in my mind that Ian Watkins has exploited his celebrity status in order to abuse young children. Today's outcome ensures that three people responsible have been brought to justice. The safeguarding of children has been the primary objective for this investigation and the outcome of this investigation has been achieved through a multi-agency approach at an international level. Two very young children have been removed from this abuse and given a future that would otherwise have been denied them.
1: That's Chief Inspector Peter Doyle from Wales Police. Well, joining me now is David Niven, who's a child protection expert and a former chairman of the British Association of Social Workers. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, what's, what's really disturbing, one of the disturbing things about this case, is that Ian Watkins seems to have used his celebrity in order to perpetrate these acts.
0: Well absolutely and I'm afraid he's the last in quite uh, what's becoming a long line of uh, celebrity uh, abusers that we're beginning to see. I mean you go back to the Gary Glitters or the Jonathan Kings or you can look at the Stuart Halls or the Jimmy Savills and and unfortunately the list is getting longer as um, more people are getting confident about coming forward or law enforcement are getting better at actually uh, discovering things.
1: What does this tell us about celebrity and child abusers? Is it that it's just easier for paedophiles if they happen to be celebrities or did they just think that the law can't touch them?
0: Possibly a bit of both. And and in this case, too, I suspect that drugs and drink uh, played a part in sort of people believing that they were beyond the law or untouchable. I think the issue is one of abuse of power as much as actual sexual abuse and when you get to be celebrity you get obviously given an enormous amount of power over quite a lot of vulnerable and uh, impressionable people and in this case it's obvious that Watkins took advantage of that to the limit and um, who knows the extent of the children that he actually abused, apart from the ones that we know about.
1: Mm, and there seems to have been grooming of the women involved. And it's very easy to kind of categorise paedophiles as only men. But of course, there are some women who abuse children also.
0: I think um, I think that's one of the biggest uh, hidden kind of statistics um, when we talk about this subject, uh, the Lucy Faithful Foundation is a child protection charity that deals with abusers um, have said not long ago that they reckon a conservative estimate of the three hundred thousand plus uh, people in the u k who are effectively they would call pedophiles about up to twenty percent of them may well indeed be women it 's um, and other consultants who've been involved in this say that it 's one of the the more hidden um, statistics around that women are just as capable of abusing uh, children as men are. A lot of cases, women are under the influence of men and procure children for men, but in many, many cases, women are the primary abuser.
1: Drugs seem to have been a factor in this case also. Is that common?
0: Um, I'm not sure of statistics, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, because they're they they they're disinhibitors, aren't they? they? They actually, anybody who was... Um, hovering on a line whether they should cross it or not, knowing that it was wrong. Effectively, if they're bolstered by drink or drugs, the obvious sort of thing is that they tend to be given that false courage to actually cross that line, and that's where children would become even more vulnerable if, if the person was a regular drug user.
1: Mm. I mean, we heard from Chief Inspector Peter Dole from South Wales Police, who led the investigation, saying that this was a case which is one of the worst cases of uh, child sex abuse that he'd seen, and presumably not just because it involves celebrities, but because it is just a very bad case.
0: Oh, I mean, reading some of the facts about what the police have discovered, it's, it's a very extreme case, and, and, and indeed he's quite right to actually say these things. I mean, those of us that have been working with this kind of thing for, for many years uh, have come across some horrible things, but you're never totally immune. You never fail to be shocked if something really extreme occurs. And some of the material that was found on Watkins' computers uh, was just beyond the pale.
1: Thank you for joining us this morning. That's David Niven, who's a child protection expert, former chairman of the British Association of Social Workers.
0: This clip is an interview I did just the other day, and it was um, the last of a couple of frenzied days of uh, interviews surrounding an Italian woman who uh, in the UK um, was a high court granted an order to have an emergency caesarean performed and her child was removed. And there was a furore about this and an awful lot of discussion.
2: Now the lawyer of the Italian woman whose baby was placed in care after she was forced to have a caesarean section has told Five Live the decision was absolutely unreasonable. The baby girl was taken into the care of Essex County Council Social Services, who say they exhausted all options before pursuing adoption. The woman is understood to have failed to take her bipolar medication, and a judge ruled she had become profoundly unwell. The C section took place last year, and the woman's lawyer, Stefano Oliver, spoke to Victoria this morning. I do not understand why my client has been enforced to have this cesarean section. What I can say is that it seems to me a very unusual uh, statement to be issued for by a judge. So from my point of view, this decision is absolutely unreasonable.
1: Can you tell us a little more about the breakdown that the mother had, the mental breakdown which led to the local health trust applying for that order to have a cesarean section?
2: I want to stress that uh, and underline that... Uh, this woman has only a minor mental disturb disease, which is bipolar syndrome, and uh, uh, we are talking about syndrome that can be cured just with medicine. She is not a woman; that is not able to understand what is happening around her. Well, that was uh, the woman's lawyer. Let's speak to uh, David Niven, who's an independent child protection expert and former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I mean, the continuing problem about discussing this case is we, we certainly don't know all the facts. In fact, we we know very few facts at all. But but what are your thoughts on uh, on what the lawyer has said there? Well, I mean, you can understand a lawyer speaking
0: uh, uh, as highly as he can for his client because obviously that's his job, and he probably also believes that effectively there should be some kind of um, extra justice here. I mean, the important thing to, to remember is that right from the beginning, 15 months ago, as far as I can gather from what people have said, the police were involved, then psychiatrists were involved, then obstetricians were involved, A high court judge was involved, social workers were involved, lawyers were involved, and at the end of the day another high court judge is now involved in the adoption hearings. Now that can't be, it just can't be a conspiracy. So taking that on board, then people have made judgments in terms of the safety of the child. Never have I come across a situation in my own working life where there had to be a a court order for a cesarean operation. I mean, I have come across some situations where there's been a court order to remove a child at birth because the child was considered to be in danger. That's the only thing I can think of here that we haven't heard obviously. We're unlikely to hear as to what kind of danger was actually judged to be the case to either to the child or to the woman or to both, if, if the child had been allowed to go to term. So effectively, there had to be enough people who made med- medical and social judgments
2: that this, this child was in danger and had to be um, uh, the subject of a caesarean. Essentially, it's, a, it's an incredibly sad case, isn't it? And the social workers uh, are very much at the heart of it. How, what would it have been like, do you think, for those social workers involved in this case?
0: It would have been, um, I would have been surprised, very surprised, if it hadn't been particularly tragic for them and particularly heartrending. I mean, this is terribly sad. It's a tragedy for the mother, for the child and for all those associated with the case. Um, I mean, also, I do believe, and I think the Italian lawyer probably wouldn't have mentioned this, but I gather that the woman's other two children are under the care of the Italian authorities because she presumably hasn't been deemed to be fit to care for them either. I think where you've got acute mental health problems, where you've got acute situations like this, and people judge with great difficulty but that the person's unable to be a safe parent, This really shouldn't be, and this is where I got very cross before, There really shouldn't be a platform for those with other agendas or misguided views of social work to use vulnerable people as a weapon to attack social workers. Because if you read some of the headlines starting on Sunday and and moving onwards, you'd think that the social workers had just grabbed the woman and performed a cesarean operation just themselves. I mean, it was just ludicrous the way that this is performed. And effectively, at the end of the day, it's not just the fact that people say we disagree with that. At the end of the day, it really affects the next day when social workers are on the doorstep with a new case and trying to gain the trust of families, when you get ludicrous misreporting like happened like this that effectively Colours the judgment of people, ordinary people, trying to actually make make their minds up of whether to trust a social worker or not.
2: Okay, it's Dave, not right. Must leave it there. David Niven, many thanks. Uh, former chair of the British Association of Social Workers.
0: Our welcome to you for this podcast. It's sponsored by David Niven Associates, and uh, you can get it on the, the socialworldpodcast.com. You can uh, get us on Twitter at @DaveNiven, Dave Niven, and you're very welcome to give feedback, which we really would appreciate. We've just developed the, um, a new initiative now that will offer media training. And we're going to offer it at different levels because we appreciate the different needs of practitioners out there and those that are working individually and those that are working in companies. So we're going to open in beginners, intermediate, advanced, whatever the particular person or the company needs. So keep an eye out um, on our website uh, for details of it. And also, excitingly, details of a conference that's coming up on um, early years parenting, the new UNICEF initiative that was launched in the Houses of Parliament not long ago. And that's going to happen at the end of March in the Bristol area in southwest England. So keep you well posted on that. Bring in a couple of guests to talk about it. And, uh, well, basically, you can watch us build the program. But for today, I thought what I'd do um, a little bit is talk about some of the things that have uh, influenced me, if you like, in choice of career. Because I've been going around the last few years and various places and in various circumstances, listening to newly qualified social workers, meeting them and picking up the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to um, how they are, what they're expected to do, all the various work situations that they've been placed in, and in some cases, to be fair to the lack of preparation that the university seems to have made for some of them in actually appreciating the real world of work. For me, though, the route into social work was quite strange. It doesn't seem that way thinking back on it now, but it was almost as if a sort of unseen hand was sort of pushing me through. When I left school I went across to America uh, to work the summer camps, and I ended up in one in New York, where we picked up <coughs> groups of children from um, inner city New York, uh basically the boroughs of um, Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant. And this was in the 70s. And we took them upstate New York, where we lived essentially as Native Americans. In other words, we embraced that culture. We had people in who were Native Americans, of course, themselves, to teach us. And we kind of lived to a large extent, ate, slept, walked, hiked, and learned about the land. Um, you, yours truly here, uh, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad, and I certainly don't know if I could have the actual um, response speed to do it now, but I did then master the uh, <clears throat> dance of the flaming tomahawks. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking live tomahawks, real tomahawks on fire, thrown at each other and caught at a considerable distance. I'm not sure quite if I'd fancy it now. But anyway, the good fun, and all the various things like the campfires at night and the legend of the peace pipe. The point about it really was that these young people, these children in different age bands over different times, had never been out of the city of New York in their lives. They'd never experienced nature. They'd never really experienced the countryside. They'd never really experienced anything to do with the heritage of um, a segment of their country. In fact, a lot of them, um, as far as I was concerned, I was really alien. And when they asked me where I came from, and I said Scotland, it took a bit of time for them then to say, uh, well, where's that? And then I said, well, uh, Great Britain? Nope. London? Nope. Although they'd kind of heard of a London not far the north, uh, near the opposite side of the uh, lake from Detroit, down in Canada, but that was about it. And then they said to me, well, how long have you been here? And I said, well, either a couple of weeks, or because it was repeated several times by different people, maybe a couple of months, or whatever, varied. But the answer was always similar. Gee, you picked up English quick. And it just made me realize that there we were amongst a lovely bunch of, of kids who actually were the salt of the earth and although they hadn't experienced all these different things before, they really embraced them and they embraced, you know, me being from somebody from a different part of the world, a different culture something that was really alien to them at the time and I learned a lot there about the universality of some things to do with young people how to work with young people to a large extent. I was taught a lot by um, co-counsellors who were mainly Americans (coughs) returning veterans from Vietnam. They'd only just served their, their tour of duty and they'd been discharged and they'd come back and they were now working the camps. They were badly messed up. A lot of them had had terrible experiences in Vietnam and a lot of them um, had had to, at some point, turn to drugs or any or alcohol or other kind of ways of getting through the day shortly, you know, in the, the days following, or the months following their uh, release from the army. It was a terrible place, according to them, and an awful lot of them wouldn't even talk about it. But I, therefore, learned a lot about the world, I learned a lot about the injustice in the world, I learned a lot about stupidity in the world, and I learned a lot about how young people behave, whether it's it's New York, or whether it's London, or whether it's Glasgow, wherever it is. Anyway, then, it didn't really still strike me, social work was a thing, but it was just it had been a good experience, and I came back to the UK, and after one or two other things, I managed to get a job with Shelter, the uh, charity for the homeless uh, in Scotland. And I I got the post of Scottish youth organiser. And so I travelled all around Scotland. It was great. Meeting young people in all sorts of different settings and setting up groups and setting up clubs and setting up initiatives for the homeless and trying at the same time to um, influence the general public uh, in understanding the depths the, uh, of um, difficulty that many homeless people were in and some of the stupid planning mistakes that were made not only in this country but I believe have, have been mirrored from elsewhere as well especially in the creation of new towns because this had a major impact on sort of um, social behaviour a major impact on social opportunity and a huge impact in terms of uh, the chances for young people Um, when they were trying to leave home or go after or follow education and into, into employment. They built these new towns specifically away from existing big urban areas. They said it was to give people a better quality of life. Well, it did. Those that went there, possibly, which usually turned out to be young couples with one child. But what happened was that the areas of extreme poverty that they left behind in the cities were really meant to be then repopulated by light industry and regenerated but of course what had happened is that the actual exodus from these parts of, of cities had only left the old or the sick or the habitually unemployed back in the areas that they needed to regenerate. Now, what light industrial, what industrialist in his right mind is going to actually put industry back into a place where the, the the workforce available is old or sick or habitually unemployed? I think, in a large way, it was a very great mistake because what they should have done, and they actually now are only doing it, you know, decades later. What they should have done is take a couple of streets at a time maybe for six months, whatever, taking that whole group of people into these new towns as a temporary measure while their existing um, area was uh, refurbished. Because it wasn't just a case of on with the new, it was a case of leave back the old, because in the areas that needed regeneration were extended family, you know, grandmother, grandfather around the corner, corner shops, that needed um, income and they needed to kind of t- turn over. And a whole community that more, many of them had actually grown up with and bonded with, and they were vir- virtually cast into completely new circumstances where they had to travel back to visit existing relatives. They had to travel back sometimes for education. They had to travel back to actually maintain the links and the bonds that were there in the first place. So a lot of it. Was mistaken, and only just latterly, I think, are people beginning to try and unpick the the, the difficulties. So I worked for Shelter, and then using that, uh, if you like, that experience uh, in Scotland, um, came to London, and then was the light bulb moment. Then was the issue that I found out I never really understood what social workers did in the statutory sector because. Certainly by the mid-70s, or the, you know, the, the, that was the way that social work was being presented more in the country, was the state was actually running it, if you like, local authorities. Um, whereas pre-1970, or a lot of pre-1970, there, there was still a massive investment by the voluntary sector. And fascinatingly, that is exactly what we're coming full circle back to now, with the state discharging itself more and more and more of um, social work responsibilities. So it was that kind of zigzag route that got me in to social work because then I saw a job in London as a homeless family social worker and uh, it kind of married the thing I was doing at the moment and let me learn a little bit about social work and uh, then we went on from there. But the newly qualified social workers today that I've come across have got different skills. Yes, they're going to be the same in sense of analysis and sense of ability to be ability to assess situations. That's still being taught as ever was. Yes, new initiatives are happening, and yes, new information is coming to light that universities are being able to um, teach aspiring social workers. But essentially, other differences emerge too, in such as technology. I, I mean, it might be stating the obvious, but the new newly qualified social workers are far more computer literate, far more technologically savvy than um, previous generations of social workers. And so because we're at that kind of cusp at the moment, if you like, that, that interface between um, you know, old and new technology and constantly changing um, technological environment, the new social workers are far sharper sometimes and far more open to change. Um, you could say plus ça change, plus la même chose, you know, it's always been like that and uh, whatever discipline you're in, and that is true, but I think you've got to identify this now in order to allow people to play to their strengths, and I think that's why the reorganization sometimes within departments might not actually take account of the fact that. Uh, Technologically, we've got an awful lot of expertise that might well be being wasted. Anyway, I am delighted that you're listening. Thanks ever so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. We've got, uh, as I said, media training coming up. We're going to be advertising that. We've got the conferences coming up. But we've also now got uh, a weekly newsletter that will go free to you. with details of the week's blogs and the week's podcast. And so if you would like to subscribe to that, please go to the site and you'll get it sent to you free. Anyway, if you've been listening, thank you.